Last week we started a series called Simple Christmas. And the whole idea of this series is simply this. There seems to be a gravitational pull in our culture to overdo Christmas. To way overdo it. We overplan. We overschedule. Some of y'all, you overdecorate. I got some neighbors that overdecorate, man. I'm telling you, like, how many life-sized inflatable characters do you need in your yard? And when it's windy, they're going to end up in my yard, you know. And it's, Rudolph, you know, I get up every morning. Rudolph is draped around my Honda. It's funny, no, but um, you know, we overschedule. Some of us overspend. Some of us overthink. You know, when we overdo anything, we tend to overlook things. And so this series is all about: can we just simplify? Christmas a little bit this year. Now, some of you took offense last week and said, Pastor, but I love to decorate my house for Christmas. I'm not telling you not to decorate your house for Christmas, for crying out loud. That's not what I meant. Like, listen to what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying sometimes we overdo things. And when you overdo things, you overlook things. Sometimes even me, I find I overthink, I overplan, and in my essence to try and forget nothing, I still forget something. So let's simplify Because what happens is the message of Christmas is really profound, but it's pretty simple. And in our effort to overdo it, we don't want to overlook things like simple love, simple joy, simple peace, simple hope. Last week we talked about simple hope. Today we're going to talk about simple love. And and the passage that really spoke to me about this this year is in 1 John. The Apostle John writes to us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. It's interesting. The Apostle John writes... So much about love. It's prob- the New Testament is really filled with lots of, lots of writing and lots of scripture and teaching about the idea and the concept, the verb of love. And we go to 1 Corinthians 13 a lot, and I'll go there a little bit later. Paul writes about it. It's kind of like one of those really epic chapters on love that a lot of people know. It's read at weddings. And, and then this, this, almost this entire letter that John is writing here in 1 John, the vast majority of it deals with love. And John writes from a firsthand experience. You remember, he was really close to Jesus. He spent three years close, and the Bible says this is the one that Jesus loved. He just, he was so tight with Jesus as a human being. And he writes this chapter while he's in solitary confinement on an island being imprisoned, living out the rest of his days by himself. And you'd think it would make a person bitter to be in solitary confinement. You know what he does? He takes pencil, puts it, well, he doesn't probably have a pencil at that point, but he starts writing. He starts writing. You know what starts bubbling up out of him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The love of God. And even in his isolation, he is so filled to overflowing with the love he's experienced from God through Jesus that he can't help but write to us about it. So here's what he writes to us in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For, have you heard this phrase before? God is love. In other words, love isn't something that God does. Love is something that God is. God is love. God loved, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world. Merry Christmas. That's what Christmas is, right? God loved us so much he sent his one and only son into the world. So Christmas is right here in this verse. So that we might have eternal life through him. And here's the verse that really jumped off the page to me this week. This is real love. Now, whenever someone says this to me, essentially what John is saying is, forget everything else you've ever thought about love. Some of you are like, done. Love has not been good to me. Love is, after all, the most painful of all emotions, isn't it? 
You don't want to get hurt anymore, just stop loving. You'll never get hurt. People I don't love very much or I don't love at all don't hurt me. The people you love the most, you let in the closest. They can hurt you the deepest. But here's what he's saying. Forget everything else you've heard about love. This is real love. He's going to tell us right here. This is real love. Not that we loved God. He said that's not real love. But that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Now, I'll be very honest with you. Every single one of those sentences is like a sermon inside of itself. It's almost like reading through Proverbs. You know, Proverbs, sometimes you can't read a whole chapter at a time. You just need to read a sentence. And you're like, man, that's so deep. I really need to meditate. Think about that for a while. So I can't really unpack every single statement in every verse. But at the same time, if you're kind of stalled in maybe your Bible reading, here's a great place for you to pick up over the next couple weeks. Just go back and keep reading these paragraphs over. Stop and ask yourself, what, do I, what is John saying to me in my own words? Where am I falling short here? And is there anything in my life that needs to change as a result of reading? It's a great, simple way for you to get ready and studying the Bible. Just read a paragraph or two. Ask yourself, what do I think it's saying to me in my own words? If the Bible is the standard, how we should be living, am I falling short anything here? And if I am falling short, what do I need to do to change? That's how you just begin to study the Bible. There's a lot here. But I'm going to just kind of trim it down this morning. Here's the big idea I'm going to be trying to drive home today. The big idea is this. Simple love is given regardless of whether or not it is ever returned. So if you have your notes inside your bulletin, some of your note takers encourage you to jot it down. The big idea is that simple love is given. It's given regardless of whether or not it's ever returned. I've noticed there's two groups of people in the world. One group of people, they love to tell you how much they paid for things. You know anybody like that? They love to tell you how much they pay for stuff. It's almost as though every time they make a purchase in their life, it stores that amount, is registered in their mind. And when sufficiently provoked, that amount will come back out their mouth. You know how you figure out who these people are? All you have to do is jeopardize the safety of something that they paid good money for, and they'll tell you how much they paid for it. For example, you know, like my mom, you know, she'd, you know, she'd buy a new a new blouse or something, and then we, on Sunday morning, we'd want to run up and give my mom a hug when we'd see her at church, and we'd have like chocolate and goldfish and stuff on our fingers. We'd run up to give her a hug, and she'd be like, don't, don't, no, 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 get your grubby hands away from me. I just spent $18 on this blouse at Ross. Man, I'm saying good money for this. You know? <laughs> Stuart says, one of my favorite places, Stuart Ross says, oh, that was well done. Uh-huh. But um, bump. All right, everybody's a comedian this morning. That was a good one, though. That was a good one. <laughs> or you know, like you just get your car washed and vacuumed, and then somebody has a nerve to get into the passenger seat with an open cup of coffee, and they don't know like how to dampen the the cup when you're going over a bumpy road, and they just get rigid. And every time something bumps, it spills out. I did this with my dad once. Man, had an open cup of coffee. I'm talking, and he's just getting irritated. All of a sudden, he says, "Man, put a lid on that coffee." I, you know, I just spent twenty five dollars having this car vacuumed and washed. You see, you don't have to have spent a lot of money on something to like to tell people how much you spent. You just have to jeopardize the safety of it. Don't bring that stuff out here in the living room. You know, we just spent one hundred fifty dollars having these carpets cleaned. Then there's this other group of people. 
They love to tell you how, much, how little they spent. So you have the people who love to tell you how much they spent. Then you have the people who love to tell you how little they spent. Do you know anyone like this? You might be that person. That's me. If I'm going to tell you how much I spent on something, it's because I'm going to tell you how little I spent on something. I, you know, and then when, why is that? You know, why is that? It's because we love a good deal. Oh, someone said hallelujah. I'm like, I read first John silent. We talk about love silent. You talk about a good deal. Amen, pastor. Someone got the Holy Ghost over here. Their arms like going everywhere. You know, some people just love a good deal. I'm one of those people. I love a good deal. I cut coupons. I'm always looking for deals. Sunday afternoon is two Sunday papers and the CVS and the, and the Giant and the, all the other circulars there. And I'm doing the math. And like, for whatever reason, I seem to be doing really well with laundry detergent and fabric softener coupons. I'll go in the store, load up the cart, pay like $3, go out, load it all up. And if, 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 if it all hits the fan or the, the apocalypse happens or whatever, I have enough laundry detergent and fabric softener in my basement to wash all of Baltimore County's clothes for months. We're in good shape. But some of us like to talk about how little we spent. You know how you figure those people out? Just pay them a compliment. Just pay them a compliment. You'll figure out who likes to tell you how to like this. Like, you know, you go up to somebody and say, oh, that is a really lovely blouse that you have on. $18 at Ross. <laughs> Great deal. And why do we, why do we whisper? <laughs> like we're ventriloquists all of a sudden. Like, man, your car looks so shiny and clean on the inside. Like you're a ventriloquist trying to pass on the nuclear launch code. You're like, normally $50, I got it for 30 yeah. Why do we do that? I don't know. We love a good deal. I love a good deal. You know what a good deal is? A good deal is when you think you got the better end of an exchange. That's what a good deal is. Good deal is when you think you got a better end of the exchange. You got far more in return than you paid. I know some of you tell me stories like, Pastor, I hear you talk about coupons. You know, one time I went to this grocery store and I loaded up the cart and they paid me $3 to shop there when I was done with my coupons. Fantastic. I'm glad that that happened for you. Like, that's wonderful. But, it's, but you, you know, you feel like, well, man, I gave them $3 and I got a cart full of groceries. I won. I defeated the grocery store. If we all do this, we'll take them all down. Is that your goal? Where will we all be if that happens? You'll all be in my basement stealing my detergent. <laughs> That's what a good deal is. It's when you feel like you got the better end of an exchange. Do you know, if you really think about it, most of the modern civilized world is held together by exchange. I'll give you a, couple defin- I'll give you a definition of exchange and I'll talk about it a little bit more. It's right here in your notes. An exchange is an act of giving one thing and receiving another. An exchange is an act of giving one thing and you get another back. We'll talk about that more in a second. There is an opposite to exchange. Exchange has an opposite. The opposite of exchange is gift. A gift is a thing giving willingly to someone without expecting payment or any kind of return. Exchange, I give something, I get another in return. Gift, I give something willingly without expecting any payment or any return on it. That's a gift. But you know, most of the modern world is held together by this idea of exchange. Let me give you some examples. For instance, many of us have jobs. Jobs are a form of an exchange. You are giving your employer 
your work and your services. And in exchange, they're giving you wages and benefits. You give them work, they give you wages. And as they give you wages, you give them work. That's how the exchange works. If you stop receiving wages and benefits from your employer, odds are, if you're wise, you'll stop giving them work. And guess what? If you stop working or providing services to your employer, if they're wise, they'll stop giving you wages and benefits. That's how the exchange works. Almost all basic economies in the world have an exchange. It's called purchasing. You give money, you get goods or services. You give them dollars, they give you things. This is how the exchange works. When you take goods or services without giving money, it's called stealing. That is not a good exchange. Professional athletes operate with exchanges, with their, with their team that they play for, with the ownership of the team. They have contracts in place. In wedding ceremonies, we exchange vows. Do you know that even relationships work in exchanges? Friendship is an exchange, right? And how you evaluate a good deal or a bad deal when it comes to exchange. If you feel like what you're getting back is less than what you're giving to anything, you feel like that's a bad deal. Have you ever had a meal that was a bad deal? You know, $19 for a hamburger. You're like, eh, it wasn't $19 worth of hamburger. Not a good deal. What you gave, you feel in your mind, far exceeded what you got back. Then there's times where what you give, you feel like is equal for what you got back. You call that a fair deal. It's a fair deal. Not a great deal, not a bad deal, but it's fair. I work 40 hours. They pay me 40 hours work. Your boss is saying, well, you didn't go above the bar. You came up to the bar. You, you got the wages. And you say, well, they're not paying me great, but they're not paying me. It's a fair deal. But then there's times when you say it's a good deal. And that's where you're giving. And what you're getting back is far more in return. Friendships kind of operate like an exchange. You're giving trust. You're giving loyalty. You're giving respect. You're giving time. You're giving attention. You're giving love. You're giving social. Whatever it is that you're bringing into that equation, that's what you're giving to it. And you know what you hope you get back out of a good friendship? Pretty much the same thing, right? Some of you have bad friendships, don't you? You're putting way more into it than you're getting back out of it. You're giving the attention. You're picking up the check. You're always the one who drives. You're always the one willing to listen. You're the one willing to drop everything and go the 10th mile and the person on the other end of the friendship is happy to just receive. That's not really a friendship. That's a dysfunction. That's bad friendship. You know, marriage, marriage works. The Bible even talks about how marriage is an exchange. Paul talks about this. Talks about it in Ephesians. He says good marriages, if you want to see love mature in marriage, it's an exchange. It's giving and receiving and receiving and giving and giving and receiving. And he says very specifically, he says, husbands, Here's what you bring into the exchange of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. God says to husbands, here's what you bring into the exchange. You love your wife just like Christ loves you. You love her. You love her and you love her and you love her. And then he says to wives. And wives, and I know you love this one, respect your husband. Some versions say submit to. They work together. Respect your husbands. 
and you respect them and you show them respect and you respect them and you respect them and you respect them. And here's how the Bible says the exchange is supposed to work as husbands love their wives. The wife feels loved and responds by giving respect. And as the husband feels respected, he gives her love. But here's what usually happens. Husbands start focusing on the wives portion of the verse. And the pastor, listen, the problem isn't that I'm not loving my wife. The problem is that she is not respectful of me. And I've been working with her on her respectfulness. <laughs> and it is just not happening. That's really the problem here. And then the wife will says, well, listen, the problem is not my respectfulness. He doesn't act like he loves me. He doesn't. He doesn't bring me flowers. He doesn't sit now. Neil Diamond songs. Doesn't bring me flowers. Doesn't send me love songs. You know, eight of you know Neil Diamond. That's how old I am. That's good. And we're always looking at the other one as though it's their fault. Well, if she would just respect me. Well, if he would just love me. Bible says you're both wrong. Husbands love your wives because you know how wives respond to love. They respond with respect. You know how husbands respond to respect, ladies, with love. And that's how the cycle is supposed to work. But what usually happens is the other way. We're looking for what we can get out of it rather than we can put into it. And what happens is the husband feels like she's disrespecting him, so he responds unlovingly. And then when she gets an unloving response, she gets very disrespectful back. And then he gets more on, and the cycle works in reverse. The way God designed a lot of our relationships to function is an exchange where both parties feel like they're getting the best end of the deal. You know what a good friendship is? It's where each person in that friendship feels like they're getting the better end of the deal. You know what a good marriage is? Where each partner feels like they're getting the better end of the exchange. It's the exchange cycle. Almost everything in life, you and I subtly evaluate on those principles. Am I getting a return that's at least equivalent to, if not better than, what I'm giving? Exchange cycles. It governs a lot of what we do and how we live and the relationships that we form. Churches work that way. A lot of people come, and I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I spend on the phone with people who say, I saw your church online and want to give you a call and talk about it for a second. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I want in a church. I want this kind of worship. Now, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And do you have a program for this? Do you have a program for that? And I patiently answer those questions, but can I just tell you as a pastor, church also is an exchange. It's not just about you coming in here and say, I, well, this, you know, I'm, I, you know, I want to eat this off the menu and that off the menu. Listen, church is about coming into an environment. We hope, we hope that we can offer something to you that will add value to your life and a lot of value to your life. We're all about being and making disciples here. We're going to give you good, solid teaching from the word. We're going to give you good, simple worship and provide a worship environment on Sunday morning. We're going to give you safe programs from your kids. We're going to try and create an atmosphere here of love and acceptance. But that doesn't just happen from one person because a part of the exchange is that my job is to equip you to do the work that God's called you to do. It's an exchange. It's not just about saying, you know what, I didn't like the songs they sung this morning, so I'm going to move on to another church. And guess what? You'll move on to another church and another church and another church until you find the perfect church of eight people where everything's just the way you like it until they change something. I've been, around, I've been in this game for 18 years. I've seen it happen a million times. Very rare is it the person that comes to me and says, you know, oh, pastor, I love this. this is exactly what I was looking for. I'm like, you'll be here for a year until I bother you, and that'll be even less than that. Because at the end of the day, you know, church isn't to be filled with people who just come to take and take and take and never invest financially and never serve and never encourage and never show love and just come and take and take and take and take. From the, and so no seed back into the church. Church is an exchange too. It's not an institution. It is an organism that's supposed to change the world. 
through the power and love of Jesus Christ. That's what exchanges are. There's an opposite to exchange. It's called a gift. A gift is a thing that's given willingly without expecting any kind of return. That's what a gift is. The Bible says this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son in the world for us. I want you to understand something. We are very uncomfortable with gifts. We don't know how to receive true gifts. We don't know how to give true gifts. There are some of us who struggle with anybody doing any kind thing for them. Do you know how hard it is sometimes for me to pick up the check for people when we go out to eat? I've been almost in grown, with grown men where we almost get into an argument over this. If I invite somebody out for breakfast or for lunch, I'm going to pick up the check. That's just what I do. Happy to do it. And it's not like, a, let's balance this all out. I remember one time I picked up the check for somebody. They're like, no, 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 no. You can't pay. I'm going to pay. No, listen, I got it. I got it. The person says, well, well, you paid the last time. I've been keeping track. I keep notes in my phone. I'm serious. I keep notes in my phone. So hard to receive. Some of you are like that, though. Why do you, you keep track? Even if someone says, does something nice for you, you say, okay, and you're thinking back in my mind, I got to repay it. I got to repay it. I got to repay it. Have you ever been given a gift by somebody that you weren't prepared to receive and you had nothing to exchange for it? And you're like running out last minute to Walgreens. And you come back like, oh, I have something for you too. Here you go. You're like, oh, okay, Metamucil in People Magazine. Thank you. you know, that's just... <laughs> Thanks for that thoughtful gift. What are you trying to say? You know? We have a hard time sometimes accepting gifts for all kinds of different reasons. We don't trust the motive. We don't want people to think that we're entitled. We don't want people to think that we're ungrateful. We, don't, we feel guilty. We have a hard time accepting gifts. We also have a hard time giving gifts. If we feel like people don't deserve it or if they didn't merit it or, you know, we, there's all kinds of reasons why. We, as a society, have a hard time with the concept of gift. Could that be why we've adopted this tradition of the gift exchange? Have you ever thought about this? They're opposites. But we exchange gifts. Because we want to get the person who's uncomfortable giving them and receiving them both off the hook. So we make a gift exchange. And we set a dollar limit usually. And we say, listen, everybody's going to buy a gift for these many people. We're going to draw names. There's going to be no more than this money so no one gets offended. No less than that money. And don't you dare go over the, the thing or you're going to make us all feel bad. Gift exchange. We're so uncomfortable with giving and receiving gifts that we have watered down the definition of what a gift is to fit into our exchange cycle life. And it's made us go numb to what God did at Christmas because we can't even recognize true gifts when they come. I want you to understand something. What God did through Jesus at Christmas was he came completely outside of the cycle of exchange. He says, I'm going to give you the very best that I can, whether or not you ever accept it because I love you. And we have grown numb to the radical life-changing, completely inhuman, controversial, difficult love of God that he gave through his son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas. Because we think about everything in terms of exchange. We even doubt God in this. Well, the reason he gave Jesus was so that I could be changed. There was, a, there was an expectation of return. He sent Jesus so that he could have relate. No, he did not. He didn't send Jesus in order to anything. He didn't send Jesus because the Bible says this is real love, not that we loved God first and that 3,500 years of our love finally broke him down and he responded with Jesus. 
John says, listen, this is real love. Not that it was an exchange cycle. It's not that we loved God first and he responded. Real love is that even before you and I existed, he loved you. You can't possibly fully understand that. I don't. And he sent his own son as a gift, not in an exchange. He didn't send his son for any other reason than because he loves you. That's why. And it's just so hard for us to grasp the life-changing implications of his love because it's so hard for us to receive and give gifts. We only think about it in terms of exchange. But this is who God is. This is what he did. So let's apply it. Let's apply it. How do we take what God did and apply it? Number one, God loved us first. So I must love others first. You didn't love God first. I didn't love God first. You ask my wife, I fell in love with her probably long before she fell in love with me. I loved her first. And I just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it and kept at it and wore her down over time. I said, fine. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Here's the thing. In an exchange cycle, it's hard sometimes to know where it began. God loved us first. Here's what John says later on in the chapter. We love each other because he loved us first. To just kind of cut to the chase, let me say this. If you want to learn how to love someone, you must not wait until they show kindness to you first. You must show kindness to them first. I'm not talking about the people you already have a spot in your heart for. I'm talking about loving who you feel like are the unlovable. It's hard to love people you don't even like. Bible doesn't say you have to like everyone. Like is a choice, love's a command. If you want to love somebody, you don't wait until they get it all together and become lovable in your eyes. If you want to love people like God love you, you love them first. But pastor, you don't understand how messed up that they are. You don't understand how offensive that they are. You don't understand. <laughs> first of all, I do understand. Second of all, how do you think you look to God for a while? How do you think I look to God for a while? You want to start making that case with people, then you just need to let God off the hook in his love for you because you and I have a much worse time. That We look much worse. I offend God every day, I'm sure. It's not a goal of mine, but I'm sure that it happens. I'm sure I disappoint God every single day. I'm sure I have done more horrendously unlovable things towards him than any other human being on the face of the earth, and yet he still loves me and he will not stop. He just loves me exactly how I am, as I am, where I am. He loves me. If you want to love others the way God loves you, you must love them first. It is impossible, it's impossible to do good for someone without a tiny root of interest for him or her growing up in your heart. If you want to love someone, do some loving thing or loving action towards them so that love will spring up. Well, well, well how do I do that? I'll give you a simple one. I'll go back to what Jesus says. Here's how Jesus says you should treat your enemies. Pray for them. Pray for the people who do you wrong. You're like, Pastor, I got it. There's like these imprecatory prayers in Psalms. You know, imprecatory prayers, David prays, Lord, let the heads of their children be dashed upon the rocks and let the bad things happen to them. Like, yeah, I will pray for them. God, get them. Get them good, get them now, get them real good, or else I'm going to if you don't act fast enough. That's not the kind of prayers you pray. When someone does you wrong, you say, Lord, I... I'm going to ask you to cover over their sin. I ask you to teach them. I ask you to correct them. I ask you to help them see the error of their way. And I pray blessing on their life. 
I pray that you bless them in their work. I pray you bless them in their family. I pray that you let forgiveness flow where they've been wrong, where they've been hurt, where they've been offended. I pray you expand it. Pastor, that just sounds inhuman. It kind of is. And it doesn't feel real good the first couple times, but you will find something. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, when you start, Pastor, you have enemies? Yeah, I don't even know who all of them are. But, I probably, but I, some of them I know. They're just people in my life I just don't get along with. There's people in my life that are hard for me to like and they're hard for me to love. They're very hard for me to love. And I go through this discipline of praying good things over their life. Well, pastor, you really think, you know, like, are you, did you read the New York Post headlines and prayer doesn't really work? And God, Listen, I don't pray all the time to change God. I Sometimes I pray because it changes me. You start praying the right thing over people's lives and something in your heart towards them starts to change. You cannot pray for blessings over someone's life every day for weeks at a time without something in your heart towards that person starting to change. You know what happens in there? A little bit of love starts to happen. Because now I'm watching their life not waiting for the rock to fall on their head. I'm watching to see if my prayers are going to take effect. I'm rooting for good things to happen in their life, not the bad things. You want to love somebody the way God loves you? Love them first. Love them regardless and love them whether or not. Love them. Pastor, I can't do that. I understand. That's why we have point number two. Experience God's love for you first and give it away as if it were very, you're very young. Guess what? You don't produce the kind of love I just described. You don't produce it. Neither do I. We don't produce it. We bear it and we share it. Can't make it. Here's what John says. Dear friends, since, we lo- since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Here's what he's saying. No one ever sees God, but if you can be so filled with the love of God and transmit it to other people, it's like making an invisible God visible. In other words, you have to somehow experience God's overwhelming love for you first. And what happens is that that plant seeds in your heart, not of the love of Phil. It's the love of God. Phil can produce love. I don't have to be a Christian to experience love. Hello? There's people all over the world that don't follow Christ. They've experienced love, but they experience love inside the exchange cycle that we all experience. There's a love that God has that operates outside of exchange that just originates and is given out whether it's ever responded to or not. That's the kind of love that doesn't come naturally. You say, well, I do things all the time. I give gifts to people and they never give me a return. I'm already doing this. If they don't say thank you, does it bother you? Then it wasn't really a gift. It was an exchange. Because you're still getting something out of it. My son does not give me dollar for dollar what I give him at Christmas. But if I spend all this time picking out his three presents and I go through a lot of thought for this and I wrap them all up. He opens up on, on Christmas Sunday morning. He throws them down the steps and never sees them again and says, those are terrible gifts and runs down the hallway. I'm going to be hurt. You know why? Because there is an exchange that's going on here. I'm giving him gifts. But I'm also kind of hoping that maybe there is at least a return of appreciation. And thankfully, it's still an exchange and there's nothing wrong with it. But I just want you to understand the love that God has. He's going to put a love on you that's going to go out and it's not going to diminish if it's never returned. It's just going to keep going and go. Because sometimes you've got to love people and 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 love people. And sometimes they respond and it breaks through. And sometimes it doesn't. But if you want love like God's love, God's love never gives up on any of us. 
No matter how long you've been rejecting his love, my friend, no matter how long you've tried to shut God out, you think you've worn him out, he's gonna move on to someone else. No, he loves and he loves and he loves and he loves. He will not stop his love even if you respond to it. It's not getting more mature. It's not growing. It's not increasing. It's as intense and passionate and jealous as it ever was because God just loves and he loves and he loves. And if I'm gonna love the way that God loves, I have to get out of this cycle of exchange and say, God, I can't produce that kind of love. I want the love of God. I want experience for myself. I want it to bubble up inside of me. And then I want to give it away as though it were my very own. That's how people connect to God. I'm going to love you and say good morning to you out here every Sunday, whether you curse me or you shake my hand. I'm going to continue to do the best I can to be your pastor, whether you're talking about me in the hallway out here or whether you're bashing me on the Internet because I love you. Now, Phil before Jesus couldn't do that. Even Phil after Jesus struggles with that at times. But there's something growing up inside of me that I can't produce, that I'm just the middleman in this great exchange. It means if I want to love like that, I have to walk close to Jesus Christ. Because every day, I need to be filled up with that kind of love. And I don't think I'm very lovable in the flesh. Some of you know my journey. I've struggled with depression. I've struggled with anxiety, low self-esteem. I've been in all kinds of therapy. I had to leave ministry for a couple years to try and get healthy. I've been through... I've been down that road, and I don't know if you ever really totally kicked that thing. Those little whispers are always there, but I'll tell you what. I still don't understand God's love for me, but I'm tired of fighting, and I'm just going to accept it. He's been trying to pick up the check. I'm going to just, thank you. Thank you that you see in me something I don't see. Listen, I don't need y'all's help to know that I'm not perfect. I know some of you think that's your ministry, but listen, I know I'm not. (laughs) I know I'm not. I know I'm not. But I'm not going to walk around with my head down all the time acting in defeat. He loves me. He knows more about me than you do, and he loves me more than you do. That makes no sense. I can't. How do you repay that? I can't. I can't. Would you just let God love you? Stop trying to be lovable. Just let him love you. I don't care if life's taught you that you're not fat enough, skinny enough, tall enough, hairy enough, smart enough, dumb enough, rich enough, poor enough. Forget everything else you know about love and let him love you. Stop rejecting it. Accept the gift. Accept the gift and then give it away as if it were very own. Finally, number three, I know I belong to God when I discover simple love in my heart for someone where previously there was none. I want you to let this sink in. I know I belong to God. I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a disciple. I know I'm making spiritual progress. When? Here's one way. When I discover love in my heart for somebody where previously I had no love in my heart for them. This is, what, this is what the Bible says. It's right there in 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. Here's what he's saying. If you find love in your heart for a human being that was totally unlovable to you previously, that love didn't come from something you produced. It is evidence that God's love is taking root and growing in your life and is activated and transforming and converting you. I will talk about this in January. There is a difference between being saved and being converted. Being saved is I confess my sins to God. I invite him into my life. I you know, make him my Lord and Savior. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Being converted means everything about me is in the process of changing. I'm afraid that in many of our churches, it's filled with people who are saved but unconverted. We know just enough about God to get to heaven and we want nothing more. We think the same as the world. We talk the same as the world. We love the same as the world. We act the same as the world. We talk about each other worse than the world. I'm not interested in just being saved. I want to be in that process of being converted for the rest of my life. I don't want to think the way I used to think. Who wants that? What testimony is there in that? 
One of the ways I know I'm being converted is where I find love in my heart where, for people where previously there was none. I love my son. You know that. I've been married for almost, uh, January we'll be, we will have been married for 17 years, my wife and I. We have a three-year-old son named Chase, for those of you who don't know. I'm terrified sometimes by how much, by how much I love him. I've had these weird experiences where like, like my wife asked me one time, what would you do on a Sunday morning if someone came in and tried to grab Chase and run out with him? And it scares me to think about what I'd do in that moment. Like I'm not thinking like I'm just going to track the person down and get him back. I'm like, I'm going to get him back and then that's scary. I commit a crime right there. No one has to train me to think that way. It just comes instinctive. I don't want my son to ever have any harm. I don't want him to be hurt. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a protector. I love him. He and I outside, you know, when I'm at work, I'm at work. But when I'm at home, we're pretty much inseparable. I would like to get to a point at some point in his life where I can shower by myself, go to the bathroom by myself. Right now it's cute, but it's like when he's 12, I'm like, son, get out. This, this is weird. Get out of here, you know. We've got to work through some of these things. But right now it's cute. He's three. We're inseparable. I'm scared by what I would do if I thought he was going to be hurt or harmed. So God, our passage says, loved us enough that he sent his only son to the world, the Bible says, at Christmas for one reason, to die. He sent him to die as a gift. Whether or not anybody would ever accept him, he sends his only son to be murdered as a gift. Now, I love you. I love all of you. I would not exchange my son's life for any of yours. Sorry. I know that may make you think less of me. I don't love that perfectly. I love you. I love him more. No way if I had to, like, would you trade his life for anybody? No. No way would I exchange my son's life. No way. Would I give his life? Would I say, you know what? We would like you to give the people your son, and we're going to murder him for them. No way. Are you kidding That's lunatic. How great is God's love for you? He gave first and he gave his best and he gave his only son to be murdered as a sacrifice for you whether or not you ever accept it. Oh, well, pastor, God did it with strings attached. God sent his son. Here's a problem that we have as Christians. Even as Christians, those of you that are Christians in the room, here's one of the things we struggle with. We get this wrong. Even we're explaining God's love to people who don't know God like we do. We explain it like it's an exchange. We say things like, God loved us and he sent his son so that he could change us. God loves us and he sent his son into the world so that you and I could... No, he didn't. God didn't send his love in order to or so that he could or because of. God didn't send his son to change you Read about Jesus' life. Jesus never used love as leverage. Never. Some of us do. We use love as leverage. Jesus never used love as leverage. He never sat down and said, now honey, since I've been so kind and loving to you, how about you change all these things in your life? Since, and, and let, he never said that. He never used love as leverage. He didn't love people so that he could change people. Jesus just loved and loved, and loved, and loved, and loved, and he just let people respond however they felt they wanted to respond to his love. 
Some of us have a hard time responding because we don't want to accept gifts. I want to tell you, there's no strings attached. But I will also say this. Just going home today feeling that God loves you won't save you. Because whether or not you ever accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He still loves you. But what transforms you is when you find a way in your heart to say, you know what, I've got to respond to this kind of love. I will tell you, when you're really shown love and when someone really gives you a gift, you just kind of feel like you want to respond. I know, I know in, in my house, you know, whenever someone gives us a gift, we write a thank you note or we, we say thank you to people. We teach my son the same thing. Whenever someone does, does something kind, you respond. How are you going to respond to God's love for you today? For those of you who know Christ, maybe you need to say, I need to be more in touch and aware of God's love in my own life because I'm at a deficit of that kind of love to give away. And I want to be the middleman in this great, this great mission of sharing God's love to the world, whether or not it ever comes back to me. For others of us, we might say, I have never felt the love of God like what I'm feeling this morning. I just feel like I want to respond somehow. How do you respond? How do you, you can't really exchange. There is no exchange. How do you exchange that? You can't. You know what you can do to in response? You can submit your life to him. You can surrender your life to God. You can make a commitment to follow his son and to try and be just like him through relationship with Jesus Christ. I just want to pray over you this morning. So would you bow your head and close your eyes as our worship team comes back? If you're here today and you want to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, it's a decision that I've made, Chris has made, Stuart, James, our pastoral team has made, our leaders here have made, many of the people in the room here have made that decision. If you want to make a decision right here at Christmas to accept the simple love of God and to surrender your life to him and follow him, it's a simple prayer that you pray. It's lifted right out of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what I'm going to pray read this morning. So if that's a decision you want to make, I can't pray it for you. You have to make that prayer yourself. Or else I could pray for everybody in the world to be saved, whether they want to or not. No, it's a decision God wants to hear from your lips to his heart. But I'll pray an example prayer for you that you can whisper right there in your seat to God between you and him. It's the same prayer I prayed when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior years ago. A prayer that says, Jesus, I believe in you and I believe that I've fallen short of the example that you've set. I've sinned against you because I've lived life up to this point my own way. I've decided what feels right and what feels wrong, and I live accordingly. God, I believe you sent Jesus as the perfect lamb to be the sacrifice for my sins. So Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I believe you're God's son, I believe you died a death on the cross that I deserved. And I believe you're raised from the dead and alive today. Come into my life. Change me forever. I accept your love for me. And I respond by making you my Lord and my Savior. In your name I pray. Amen.